Why are you here? Why am I here? What are we doing here at the IMC week after week after week, Sunday after Sunday? Is there an ultimate purpose to this gathering? If so, what is it? Are we just doing what Christians have always done? Is there really any eternal significance to us meeting together on Sunday mornings to sing songs, pray, listen to a sermon? Last month, Donald Miller, he's the author of the bestseller, uh, best-selling book, Blue Like Jazz. It was, a, it was real popular about, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. Um, he's a pretty well-known author. He posted an article on his blog titled, I Don't Worship God by Singing, I Connect with Him Elsewhere. <laughs> now, just the title itself uh, raises some, some questions, but this is what he writes in this, this uh, short blog post. He, he writes this, I have a confession I don't connect with God by singing to him, not at all. I know I'm nearly alone in this, but it's true. I was finally able to admit this recently when I attended a church service that had perhaps the most talented worship team I've ever heard. Did anybody see Donald Miller here? Because he said it was the most talented worship team. Anyway, I've <laughs> been working on that one. Um, this is what he says. I loved the music. But I loved it more for the music than the worship. As far as connecting with God goes, I wasn't feeling much of anything. I used to feel guilty about this, but to be honest, I experience an intimacy with God I consider strong and healthy. It's just that I don't experience that intimacy in a traditional worship service. In fact, I can count on one hand the number of sermons I actually remember. So to be brutally honest, I don't learn much about God by hearing a sermon, and I don't connect with him by singing songs to him. So like most men, a traditional church service can be somewhat long and difficult to get through. But how do I find intimacy with God if not through a traditional church model? The answer came to me recently, and it was a freeing revelation. This is what he says. I connect with God by working. I literally feel an intimacy with God when I build my company. I know it sounds crazy, but I believe God gave me my mission and my team, and I feel closest to him when I've got my hand to the plow. It's thrilling. I couldn't be more grateful he's given me an outlet that I can both serve and connect with him. Now, I'm not here to bash Donald Miller. And some of what he says, there's some truth to. We do worship God. By working, right? All of life is meant to be lived in worship. Whether you're a pastor preparing sermons week after week, or whether you're an engineer um, creating and designing, or whether you're a plumber installing toilets, it's all meant to be an act of worship. That is certainly true. But I want us to think about what he is saying. Has God given us any instruction about how we are to worship him as the body of Christ? Should we seek a model of corporate worship, and when I say corporate worship, I mean the gathering of God's people, should we seek a model of corporate worship that fits and conforms to our lifestyle, or are we called to conform our lifestyle to what God has told us? 
Is corporate worship simply a human construct determined by the immediate culture and life patterns within our context, or is corporate worship determined, defined, and expected by God? Is the body of Christ gathered for the explicit purpose of worshiping God something to be cast aside when it doesn't meet our expectations? Is it something that at best is optional for Christians? Is it something that we can do as long as it fits into our schedules, as long as we get something out of it, as long as we think we are learning something, or as long as we like the people who are on stage, or as long as it's meeting our immediate needs? I have to be honest, sometimes I wish it was. Many times in my flesh, my heart grows cold. I was made aware of this this week as I was preparing this message. The amount of time and energy it takes to plan and execute a worship service week after week can become wearisome. It's easy to become weighed down by the expectations of others, the fear of man, the business of life, and the guilt of my own sin. This has caused me, as one who plans worship services, to wonder, is this all really necessary? What am I doing? What's the purpose of this? It doesn't take long for this kind of doubting and questioning to turn into apathy, laziness, and even discouragement. And as a worship pastor, to become discouraged about the Sunday morning gathering of your church is a problem causes me to start questioning things that seem so certain to me. Has God really called me into ministry? Will ministry always feel like this? Will I ever be excited about corporate worship like I used to be? But then I open my Bible, which is helpful in those times, and I read Psalm 96. Turn to Psalm 96 if you haven't already. Read with me, Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness.
Now, what do we know about this psalm? Most of the psalms in the book of Psalms only appear in the book of Psalms. But this one actually first appears in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. This is when King David and the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem after it had been taken by the Philistines. Now remember, the Ark of the Covenant signified the very presence of God. It contained the tablets of the Ten Commandments. It was to be stored in the tabernacle where the high priest went to make sacrifices for the people of Israel. It would later be stored in the temple after it was built under King Solomon. But the Philistines had taken the ark from the Israelites in battle. When God began to send plagues on the Philistines, they got scared. And they said, okay, um, God is sending us essentially hemorrhoids, is what it was, tumors. Um, We need to get rid of this thing. God began to curse them for taking the ark. And so they decided we're going to send it back. So the ark was sent to a town called Kiriath-Jerim, and it stayed there for many years. But finally, in 1 Chronicles 14, we are told that David defeated the Philistines in battle. He brings the ark of God back into Jerusalem. So this was a huge deal. Remember that the ark of God signified God's very presence with his people. It had been kept away from the capital city for many years And when King David brought the ark back, we are told that he appointed this song, Psalm 96, to be sung by the priests. So here we have a song, Psalm 96, that Israel sung in a time of great celebration and joy, a song they probably would have sung their entire lives over and over again. It would have been something like the amazing grace of the Israelites, It reminded them of God's salvation, how he rescued them from their enemies. It reminded them of his own covenant faithfulness. It was prescribed by God to be sung by the people of Israel. And from Psalm 96, we can learn a lot about our own corporate worship. But what do I mean when I use the term corporate worship? Corporate worship, it took me a long time to... uh, nail down some kind of working definition of corporate worship because the ones I found were so long and involved, and they're really good. Um, but, I, you know, for our purposes, I want to keep it kind of, kind of short and, and succinct. And so here is my proposition, essentially, um, for the sermon. Corporate worship is the gathered people of God responding in delightful obedience to the revealed Word of God. Corporate worship is the gathered people of God responding in delightful obedience to the revealed Word of God. Now, as we go along, hopefully we'll see that unpacked. But I want to ask some questions. When we talk about corporate worship, we're asking, why do we do this? What's the point? What's the purpose? Is there any eternal significance? The first question I want to ask is, who are we to worship? When we gather together, who are we to worship? This seems painfully obvious, right? Who are we to worship? We are to worship God. Look at Psalm 96, verses 1 and 2. We are told to sing to the Lord three times. Verse 4, great is the Lord. Verses 7 and 8, we're told to ascribe to the Lord three times. Verse 9, worship the Lord. Verse 10, the Lord reigns. All the personal pronouns in this chapter refer back to the Lord. He, him, his. Make no mistake, 
The entire psalm from start to finish has one focus. It's God. Now, at first, like I said, this seems very obvious and way too simple. Of course, we're to worship God. Okay, we get it. Let's move on. But before we skip over this obvious fact, let's think about it for a moment. First of all, I don't think we can assume that everyone acknowledges that God's people gather to actually worship God. We live in an age where misunderstandings and false teachings uh, about the church abound. And these misunderstandings and false teachings often find their outlet in the many and divergent ways the churches choose to assemble and what becomes their focus in those times. Today, right now, in churches all over the world, people have gathered uh, for the purpose not of worshiping the God of the Bible, but for worshiping a God of their own imaginations. Now, sometimes this worshiping of a false God is simply a result of bad theology. Think about it this way. If I were to say to my wife, Kelly, Kelly, I love your short blonde hair and your blue eyes. I love the way you're always nice to me, even when I sin against you and don't treat you well, and you never challenge me to be a better husband and father, but you just let me do what I want to do, even if it's things you don't like. I love the way you fry up catfish exactly the way I like it. (laughs) Now, of course, if I said these things to my wife, she would be very confused and probably very hurt. My wife does not have short blonde hair or blue eyes. So I show that I don't even know what she looks like. And even though my wife is very patient with me and she loves me way beyond what I deserve, she does challenge me to be a better husband. And her love for me does not mean that she overlooks my sin or lets me do whatever I want. So I show that I don't even understand her love for me. And last, we never eat fish. Neither of us like fish. We hate fish. So I've shown that I don't even understand what she has done for me at a very basic level. One of the primary things my wife does is cook dinner for our family every night. And if I say, the fish you cooked was fantastic, I show that I don't even know like, the very most basic thing that she does. I'm ignorant of it. This is a rather silly example, right, of something that in reality is not so silly at all. It's actually very frightening. Many people are sitting in churches right now worshiping a God that they have fashioned in their own minds. They don't know what his character is like. They don't understand his love for them, and they don't know what he has done to save them. You see, everyone is a theologian. Everyone is worshiping a God. The question is, Is it the God revealed in Scripture? So who are we to worship? We're to worship God, the God revealed in Scripture. Sometimes we worship a false God because we have bad theology. Sometimes this false God, though, is the God of emotional experience. Perhaps you're here because you are primarily seeking an emotional experience. You bought into the lie that says that your love for God is measured by the amount of emotion you can conjure up during a worship service. 
or it's measured by how many chills you get when you sing, How Great Is Our God. Or maybe it's measured by how many tears you shed during the time of confession. Now, don't get me wrong. Worship involves the emotions. Make that clear. Worship should be an emotional experience. Worship is not less than emotion, but that's not all worship is either. Our focus when we gather together is not emotion, but communion. We long to engage with God in a real way. Sometimes our false God is a result of bad theology. Sometimes our false God is uh, the God of emotional experience, and sometimes our false God is just very simply ourselves. How many of us are here today and we are actually worshiping ourselves? Perhaps we look around and all we can do is criticize. This is me sometimes. The music is not up to my standard. It was not the case today. Maybe it's not my style. I could probably do it better. The preacher's boring, doesn't hold my attention. I could probably do that better too. The facility is shabby and unpleasant. I wouldn't meet here if I was in charge. The people here seem fake. They don't talk to me as much as I want. They aren't into the things I'm into. There's no place for me to serve uh, the way that I want to serve here. Everyone here is so different from me, 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 I, I. Everything becomes about me, what I can get, and what other people can do for me. We forget that we are not at the center of worship. God is. Our corporate worship is a time when we come together gladly and joyfully forgetting about our own preferences, our own tastes, and setting our hearts on the character and work of God. And that is a freeing thing. This is something that... I wish I had experienced before the last few years of my life, but when we meet together, the, the joy and the contentment that I get when I relinquish all of those preferences that I hold on to so dearly, and I say, those things don't matter. You know what matters? Communion with God, communion with my brothers and sisters. That's what matters. Psalm 96 reminds us that God is the center of all true worship. When we come together, we must understand rightly who God is, what he is like, what he has revealed to us in his word. This is why theology is so important. If we are believing lies about who God is or what he has done for us, then we cannot, we will not worship him rightly. And we come together not just seeking an individual emotional experience, but to respond to the revelation of God in obedience and faith along with the rest of the church. And we do this by putting our own preferences aside so that our attention and focus can be on God. God God-centered worship focuses on the character and the work of God. So, who are we to worship? We're to worship God. But why? Should we just worship God simply because he demands to be worshipped? Does God just make demands on us to worship him blindly? And he doesn't give us any reasons and motivations for doing so? No, not at all. Psalm 96 gives us many, many uh, uh, motivations and reasons for worshiping God. We're just going to hit a few. First, 
Why are we to worship God? Because he has provided salvation through his marvelous works, verses 1 and 2. Remember that when King David appointed this psalm to be sung, it was in response to God giving victory to the Israelites over the Philistines. God had saved his people. He had brought them out of bondage, set them in their own land. He was in the process of exalting himself over the false gods of all the nations around them. And he's still at work and doing the same thing today. Now, of course, we live in a much different time in redemptive history than the Israelites did. But if the Israelites could praise God for his covenant faithfulness, how much more can we praise God for his covenant faithfulness this side of the cross? God has provided our salvation, and it is just as real as the defeat of the Philistines. Just as God provided his servant David to lead the Israelites in battle against the Philistines and bring out salvation for his people, so God has provided his servant Christ to defeat sin, death, and the devil and bring about salvation for those whom he has chosen. The book of Hebrews tells us that Christ came, partook of flesh and blood, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, And deliver all those who through their fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Just as the Ark of the Covenant was brought back into Jerusalem and the presence of God was once again established among his people, so Christ has come to dwell with us. He came in bodily form. He kept all of God's commands perfectly and then willingly offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Upon his resurrection and ascension to his father, he left the Holy Spirit so that he is always with us. God's presence with his people is no longer contained in a tent or a temple, but now God dwells with us, with his people, by his Holy Spirit. He is with us now. These works of God and many more revealed in Scripture are marvelous to us. When was the last time you meditated on God's works revealed in Scripture? His mighty power, His power to overcome the sin and the rebellion of your own heart. These are the marvelous works of God. All of this is God's salvation. It's this salvation that we gather to celebrate each week. But why else should we worship God? Because he's great and to be feared above all gods. Verses four and five. He's great. He's to be feared above all gods. The God of Israel is greater than all the false gods of the nations. But why? What makes God greater? What makes the God of Psalm 96 greater than all the gods of the pagan nations? Verses five And 11 and 12 tell us he made the heavens. Verse 5, all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Look down in verse 11 and 12. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. We worship God because he's the creator of all things. What is it that sets him apart from the surrounding false gods? 
He created the universe, and He created it for His own glory. The creation, verses 11 and 12 tell us, the creation testifies to its creator. All of creation is meant to give God glory. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim His handiwork. Day after day pours out speech. Night after night reveals knowledge. The creation points to its creator. A song we just sung, all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing, O praise Him, O praise Him. Thou rising moon with praise rejoice, ye lights of evening, find your voice, O praise Him. Hallelujah. But perhaps more importantly, we worship God because He created us. The children's catechism asks, why should you glorify God? Why should you worship God? Because He made me and takes care of me. Just as a beautiful work of art testifies to its creator, so created beings testify to the one who created us. We worship God because He made us. But why else do we worship God? Look at verse 6. We worship God because splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. We worship God because He is the only being worthy of our worship. Why would we worship anyone or anything less than perfection? From the beginning, man has been in search of ultimate beauty, ultimate majesty. This has been the goal of philosophers, musicians, artists. We could even say that every man who has ever lived has been in search of that which provides ultimate pleasure. Man longs for truth, goodness, and beauty in any and all of its forms. And here we are told that perfect splendor, majesty, strength, and beauty belong to God. Why would we seek for those somewhere else? All earthly beauty, all earthly majesty we experience here will fade away. It will not last. In fact, the reason it does not last is because all beauty and all pleasure we experience here is supposed to be temporary, is supposed to leave us wanting more so that when we experience it and when the joy and the pleasure is over, our eyes are turned to the one ultimately who that joy and that pleasure is pointing towards leads us to Christ. Why would we search for the eternal and that which is temporal? In the words of C.S. Lewis, why would we waste our time playing with mud pies in the slums when a holiday at the beach is waiting for us? The ultimate aim in every human being is satisfaction, and God knows that, and He and Himself is the only one who can meet that need. Strength, Beauty and majesty and splendor are His. And when we belong to God, as Second Peter says, we partake of His divine nature. We get what we have always been seeking. Splendor, majesty, strength, beauty. Why else are we to worship God? Verse 13 tells us, because He is coming to judge the earth. 
Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. We worship God because just as he executed judgment on the enemies of Israel, so he is coming to execute judgment on the enemies of Christ. The book of Jude tells us, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The judgment of God is a real and terrifying thing. He does not share his glory with another. And when Christ returns, he will return with a sword and he will execute his judgment. And his judgment is righteous and it is faithful. What does that mean? It means that when God judges, it is an exact judgment. There is no partiality. He will render to everyone exactly what they deserve. No sin will go unpunished. Every fleeting, lustful thought you have ever thought, every moment spent in sinful idleness, every white lie, every word of gossip, every act of rebellion against our holy God will be punished. And sinning against an infinite, eternal God will require an infinite, eternal punishment. The question is, Will you be the one to receive that punishment or will you flee to Christ today? Will you flee to the one who for your sake took that punishment upon himself? You see, sin always goes punished. No sin will ever go unpunished. The question is, will Christ take your punishment or will you take your punishment One day, probably much sooner than you think, you will stand before God, every sin exposed. At that moment, it'll be too late. Repent of your sin today. Run to Christ today. Don't let another day pass. Today is the day of salvation. Now, we could unpack many other reasons why we are to worship God. I mean, Psalm 96 gives us a lot of reasons why we are to worship God. Um, But we need to ask one more question. How are we to worship him? I mean, does it really matter how? Has God really told us how he expects us to worship him? Aren't we free to worship any way that feels comfortable and meets our needs? Well, let's look back at Psalm 96 and see. How are we to worship God? Well, first, we're to worship God corporately as the body of Christ. We are to worship God when we are gathered together in God's name. That was the expectation in the Old Testament. It continues to be the expectation in the New Testament. God's people are expected to meet together in groups to celebrate our common salvation in Christ. There is no such thing as just me and Jesus Christianity Hebrews 10 tells us, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. 
When we worship God, we are actually proclaiming the gospel to one another. This is meant to increase our love for God and one another as our hearts are unified under our Lord, one faith, under one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. So we are to worship God corporately, congregationally. We are to meet together and worship God together. Second, we are to worship separately as families of God. Look at verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. This is one of the reasons why we encourage families to, to stay together as much as possible for corporate worship. Children will model their parents in worship. What better way to teach our children about worship than to worship God right next to them? But our families should also be worshiping God separately in our homes. Does your family worship God? Do you sing Christ-centered songs in your home with your kids? Do you read the Bible together? Are you instructing your children in the character and work of God? Are you talking and proclaiming and telling God's wonderful works of salvation in your home? So we worship corporately. We worship separately as families We worship by singing, declaring, and ascribing. Verses 1 through 3 and 7 through 8. 1 through 3, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. So we're just supposed to sing, right? Verses 7 and 8, ascribe to the Lord. Families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory do his name. Uh, Verse 10, say among the nations the Lord reigns. The trees of the forest sing for joy. All of this, we're supposed to sing, declare, ascribe. All of these words teach us that when we are gathered for worship, we ought to be speaking words to God and to one another. We are to be vocalizing. We are to be proclaiming. We are to be declaring, telling, and preaching the character and work of God. We are commanded to sing. God has given us the gift of music and especially singing. Now, why is that? It's so that our voices can meet up with our emotions. So we have truth and spirit, in a way, coming together. Our voices match the level of our emotions, and it results in praise, overflowing adoration. What is singing? It's the highest form of proclamation. That's what singing is. It's proclaiming through song. The emotional power, this is a quote from um, um, Donald Hustad. He's, He's writing about Augustine here, but he says this. The power, the emotional power of music is perhaps best realized in the life of the church when proper music is coupled to appropriate text. So proper music coupled with the right words. In this union, the music dramatizes, underlines, or breathes life into the words, resulting in more meaning than the words themselves could express. And music is a wonderful gift of God. Singing is a gift of God. 
This is why we try to sing songs that are theologically informed and, and musically uplifting. We want our heads and our hearts to be active in worship. We should be singing songs that are true about God and that point us towards Christ. When we sing, we are declaring the truth about God to himself, to him and to one another. Colossians 3 reminds us to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, how are we to worship God? We're to worship God corporately. We're to worship God as families. We're to worship God by singing, declaring, ascribing, proclaiming, all of that. We are to worship God missionally. Look at verse 3. Declare his glory among who? The nations. His marvelous works among who? All the peoples. Look in verses 9 and 10. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. We see words nations and peoples in these verses. These words are referring to the pagan nations surrounding Israel. They worshiped false gods and idols. The worship of the people of God was meant to spread into these, these foreign nations so that Israel might become a light to the nations. Exodus 19.6, God says that he wants his people to be what? A kingdom of priests. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. Why were they to be a kingdom of priests? They were supposed to mediate for all the other nations in their surrounding. They were to be the ones, the light of the nations. When they exalted, when they lifted up and worshiped God, the nations surrounding them would see that and they would long to be a part of that. And today, our worship should also be missional. Now, there is an aspect of our worship, our corporate worship, that in a way is a calling out to the unbelieving world to come here and join us. Stop worshiping the things of this world uh, when they can never satisfy and come join us as we enjoy true majesty, splendor, and beauty. That is part of what we do here. But we also know that Redeemer Church in Champaign-Urbana is not the center of God's redemptive plan. Look around. The Ark of the Covenant is not here. If it is around anywhere, it wouldn't be at the IMC. God's presence is no longer limited to a specific location. Our worship should motivate us to go. The primary means uh, or the primary way that our worship is missional is not necessarily by bringing the nations to us, to this central location. The primary way that we worship missionally or that our worship is missional is that it motivates us to go out. We are to go out. Jesus said that God is seeking people who worship him all over the world in spirit and in truth. God longs to see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worship him. And that means we must go to them. If our corporate worship is not motivating us outward, then our understanding of worship has become something very different than what God intended. 
So, how should we worship? We should worship corporately, together, as the body of Christ. We should worship separately as families, in our homes, families, here, together. We should worship uh, by singing, declaring, proclaiming, ascribing. We should be using words. Everyone, not just the preacher, everyone is singing words, true words about who God is, what he has done for us. And fourth, we should worship missionally. Our worship ought to be reaching out to the nations, drawing them here, but also motivating us outward. This is why we pray uh, almost every week for missionaries, um, church planters, other ministries uh, in our area. We're always reminding ourselves that we are not the center. We want to be thinking outward. I began by reading from a person who has basically abandoned the gathered church, Donald Miller. Now, it's not entirely clear why he's done this. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons. But the reason he, he gave, or the reasons he gave, was basically that he has not gotten the results from it that he desires. He doesn't remember the sermons. He doesn't learn best by sermons. Um, he, doesn't, he says he doesn't connect with God the way that he thinks he should in a traditional church service. But I'm going to end by reading from Jonathan Lehman. Now, Jonathan Lehman is an elder from Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He responds to Miller's article. He first uh, admits that when he read Miller's book, Blue Like Jazz, which it's a pretty good book. I mean, it's, it's very entertaining. Has a, he has some good stuff uh, in there. When Lehman read Blue Like Jazz several years ago, it resonated with him. He appreciates the ways that Miller identifies some of the ways that the modern church has succumbed to the surrounding culture. That's what Blue, Blue Like Jazz is about, just how the church has just sort of tried to model the world in very unhelpful ways. But this is what Lehman responds to, uh, to Miller by saying. He says, instead of moving away from the traditional forms of institutional Christianity, I've moved toward them. This is a pretty long quote, but stick with me. My way out, Lehman says, was deeper in. My way out was deeper in. I'm now an elder in a church with hour-long sermons, several long prayers, lots of singing, membership classes and interviews and meetings. We talk about repentance, practice church discipline, and use phrases like submitting to the elders. Spiritual life comes by hearing, seeing, and submitting, typically in that order. We hear God's word preached, sung, prayed, and counseled. We see it lived out in the lives of fellow Christians and leaders. We submit ourselves to the word and these fellow sinners and all their faults and eccentricities in a local congregation. He gives a specific example. He says this, pick just one word out of the Bible. Say, patience. I will not know how wonderfully patient God is and how impatient I am until I close my mouth and I listen to a fellow believer open the Bible and say, God is patient. And then he asks me, how patient were you this week with your wife and kids? And then he encourages me and he says, consider God's patience for you in Christ. Even then, this word patient will, remain, will remain a little abstract. So on Sunday morning, I look across the pew at Tom, 
who I know is being treated unfairly at work. But there he is, belting out at the top of his lungs the words, When through fiery trials my pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. From how firm a foundation. The next day I ask Tom how he's doing. He tells me how he's praying for his colleagues, loving them, inviting them to dinner. That's what Jesus' patience looks like. Tom, waiting on the Lord, forgiving, praying, and singing with all of his joy. I need Tom. I need every other member. I need the honorable parts of the body and the dishonorable parts. I can't say to the hand or foot, I don't need you. I need all of them, the weak and the strong, the winsome and the irksome. And we all need the word in sermon, in song, and in prayer guiding us. So we gather weekly to listen. Then we scatter to look, love, and help each other live. That's my hope. That's my prayer. I pray that we would not abandon the church. We would not abandon the corporate gathering of the body of Christ, but that we would move deeper in. My hope today is that you would respond to God's word, not by moving away and keeping the church at arm's length, but that you would move further in. You are needed here. There is a place that God has just for you in the body of Christ. My hope is that you would join us, Redeemer Church, in responding to God's word as God's people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we confess um, that we are a people who are easily distracted and we love to prefer our own way and we um, are judgmental at times and we, um, quite honestly, speaking for myself, I'm just lazy. And I don't want to put a lot of effort into... Um, the body of Christ, and uh, I, many times I, my heart grows cold towards the church. But Father, I pray that you would ignite, ignite our hearts in worship today. Lord, I pray that we would see the great value and the eternal significance of meeting together as your gathered people. Lord, you have called us out of darkness into your light, and I pray that we would worship with all of, the, of our might, all of our strength, we would exalt the name of Christ in singing, in proclaiming, in declaring, in exalting, in ascribing glory and honor to you. God, I pray that Redeemer Church would do that. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.